Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 007 of the Core 4 Podcast. Yankees baseball is imminent. Opening day, 2019. It is Yankees baseball today in the Bronx. How are we feeling? I'm excited. Like, I'm, I'm just so excited. I'm excited. It's about I damn time. It is about damn time. What is it? 170 day off season for the New York Yankees. Uh, just ups and downs of free agency rumors, ups and downs of trades of, you know, this guy struggled. This guy's great. We don't like this guy. We like this guy. And speculation about lineups and about everything. And it's all coming to fruition. It's all ending today in the Bronx, one o'clock PM against the Baltimore Orioles. Man, it is a long overdue. Seriously. I'm so sad. I have to miss today's game. Oh, uh, I, have, I have a baseball game. I don't play, but I still have to be there to support my team. But or my team, yeah. the team. <laughs> might just throw in the airpods in the bullpen. So we'll throw, see. Yep, yeah, throw in the airpods. Well. Listen to John and Susan. Love you guys, John and Susan, if you're listening. Um, well, I thank you, Susan. <laughs> Stepping up to the microphone is the voice of Emerson Baseball, Maxwell Wildstein. Well, I thank you, Andy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Max will be tuning in to WFAN from. from Don't tell Max's back. coaches, though. I don't think they're going to uh, care. They already know I'm on my phone 24-7 during the games. It's pretty bad. <laughs> We're having a vintage matchup today of the Baltimore Orioles and the New York Yankees. When I think about watching the Yankees as a kid, I, you know, just the knee-jerk reaction is afternoon game in the Bronx against the Orioles. I don't know what it is about that. Maybe it's because they play 20 times a year. I don't know. Maybe it's because they always kill the Orioles, but that's kind of just what I think of. We're going to get to beat up on the Orioles for a couple of games, then we're going to go beat up on the Tigers, and then I'm pretty sure we're going to beat so. up on you the Orioles so. again. Mm. And before we lose all um, six games and start 0 6. I find that highly unlikely, especially given yeah, the histories that, uh, that we've got with uh, a lot of Orioles pitching. Yeah, Who are they even just, throwing today? Kashner? It'll be Kashner, yeah, because yeah. Cobb is hurt. Oh, Hurt his groin, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't even know who. I don't even know who. Who is it? It would be a Cashner Bundy, something, 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 something. I don't even know, honestly. At that point, they just put Yaka Bonus. I don't know. Jimmy Bonus. Oh man, I, I think at that point they just like they just pick up random guys off the street of Baltimore and say, "Hey, when's the last time you threw a baseball?" And if the answer is any time within the last five years, they say, you think you look good in black and orange? And then thus, they're a Baltimore Oriole. Yeah, that's kind of how it seemed to work. According to their official um, release ahead of the series, they've got Kashner going game one, Dylan Bundy game two, and game three is a to-be-determined pitcher, um, which means that they are still combing the streets of Baltimore in search of that elusive third starter um, amongst their crew of number five starters at best uh, that they're kind of putting together there. Um, You know, uh, there's something to be said about what they're eventually going to do in Baltimore. They've hired guys out of the Astros front office um, who are now kind of working to make the Orioles their next project. Um, Which I think is a good move. I, I actually do like in terms of personnel behind the scenes 
and not on the field. I think they've been doing a pretty good job over the offseason at surrounding these players who really don't have much to work with, with guys who can make something out of, you know, not a lot, most likely. They're higher analytically driven guys, which we see the industry is driven by a lot now. And I think, obviously, it's the Orioles, so something is doomed like to go wrong at some point, but I think they're putting themselves in a pretty good position to not fail. Although it is more or less inevitable. Yeah. They'll probably lose like 110 games. So it really doesn't matter. Which is fine because they had no chance anyway. And they're being smart and trading anything that they have that can turn into something, you know, in the hopes, the more prospects you can amass in your system, the higher chance that they end up being the next you know, the next Machado for them or the next, you know, how the Padres have like every single top prospect under the sun at this point. Yeah. And I mean, like we kind of have gotten pretty lucky as Yankees fans because we have never been, I mean, at least recently, like we haven't been in the position where we're dreadful, but like we've always had a, like a serviceable team and good guys in the pipeline that are, you know, all of right our guys there. have worked out also. I mean, that's exactly. I mean, with the exception of maybe a couple that have been either traded or hidden in the lineup or I mean, Clint Frazier, we don't know yet because he's, you know, what, like, obviously he kind of stinks this year, but sub 500 OPS in springs. Not too yeah, great. He had a rough spring and he also, the way that Gardner hit out of the gate, it sort of, it, he talked a lot of game coming into camp and then it just like, like that's all he does is it talk gone. And then he gets a concussion. He's out for a fucking for a year. I mean, that's just how he is. He's a cocky kid who's not any good, but at least he's good at being cocky. It sounds a lot yeah. like a certain tall first baseman that talks kind of a big game and then gets hit by a pitcher. Uh, I've never seen Bird really say anything like that, but that's all right. Kind of like when he said he was going to have five or six thousand more chances as a Yankee last summer, and then has done absolutely nothing to prove that fact. Uh, all right, but anyway. So real ones won't ignore of, his higher OPS in the spring. Real ones will look to last episode when JP said that spring stats don't matter. But real ones will also look at Aaron Boone's comments the other day about the lineup. And these aren't just necessarily comments for the spring training lineup or spring training. GSC, look at my head still is the opening day lineup, but kind of going forward into the season and in the season at large where he made a few comments in particular that I saw floating around Twitter that judge will likely be hitting second for a lot of the time, which is not new, but you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't like that. Get the man as RBIs, put him in a better position or, you know, whatever. I understand. But at the same time, like the guy is on base percentage is like 400 plus at any given day. So having a guy like that who will be on base half the time, in the two hole with such good hitters at three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine is not necessarily an inherent bad thing. Not at all. And then we also saw comments about Glaber Torres. He'll be hitting seventh a lot. Um, the split of leadoff guys between Brett Gardner against right-handed pitching and DJ LeMahieu against left-handed pitching. And then we also saw Boone say that Greg Bird will be hitting around the five or the six hole a lot of the time when he's in the lineup to break up the righty lefty, you know, break up all the righties in the lineup with a lefty, which we know the Yankees, especially with the absence of Didi Gregorius 
do not have a lot of lefties in that lineup. So if Greg Bird is playing, that'll be a nice, a nice addition in the middle of the lineup. But JP, what do you think about the, he already kind of came out and, and made the distinction about the leadoff guys uh, between Gardner and LeMahieu. Do you think him saying that is just for the first week or two, or is that kind of an, uh, like, cause one might read that as Aaron Hicks might be out for a little bit. Possibly. Um, and I think that, that Hicks was very optimistic with his timetable as, you know, someone who obviously his, his plan was to be the opening day center fielder. And at this point he he's kind of chomping at the bit to get back. And I think he's more behind than he expected to be at this point. Um, and you know, that kind of is what it is. Brett Gardner is a, a capable center fielder and a capable leadoff hitter. And, and I don't know if that's, you know, that's more of a, you know, we're working with what we got kind of comment from Boone, in my opinion, mm-hmm. I, think yeah. I think he's so not going to be talking about Aaron Hicks leading off when it's not possible for him to be doing yeah. so. And I think that that will end up at a point, you know, a couple of weeks down the road where maybe we're talking about Brett Gardner batting ninth and Aaron Hicks leading off. And, and that's a conversation to be had when Hicks isn't on the injured list. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> at this point though, I think I really like, I mean, you can say what you want about Gardner, but I do think that one of his skills is, is he's a very capable leadoff hitter. I think he always sees a ton of pitches and is always sort of um, selective enough and has good enough contact skills to be doing it as well as a good enough eye that he's not overly zealous trying to, you know, yep. smoke the ball, but is willing to get into a deep count. Um, and so, uh, which is something that, that, you know, LeMahieu is not exactly a prototypical leadoff guy. He doesn't walk a ton. Um, and so you, you sort of, you know, in my opinion, I, I like him as a, you know, six or seven hitter w- with LeMahieu just because he, he is always well, looking like to hit a leadoff guy. Not yeah. Like the, you know, the typical like, oh, he's our second leadoff where he's literally, literally leading off for the one hitter. But the, the leadoff guy of the second half of the order, almost like after the right. power guys at four or five, and then it's bam, LeMahieu at six, and it's okay. We have a bunch of good hitters, seven through nine. Let's have this guy, you know, slap a single, get on pace. And then the guys like Glaber Torres, who is said to be batting seventh a lot, and Gary Sanchez, who might be batting sixth, seventh, eighth. I mean, he won't be that low. I don't think. But I think he'll be there to start. I mean, remember. They want to, you know, if it's up to me, you want to try to keep some pressure off of Sanchez after last year and sort of let him reestablish his his bat. Um, I know to to finish off my point about LeMahieu, he walked at a six point four percent rate last year, which in five hundred eighty one plate appearances is actually one of his lowest of his career. But the highest rate he's ever walked at is 10 percent, which is uh, below league average. So that's sort of not something you want to be looking for in your leadoff guy, but, um, you know, we're, we're at, you know, it seems like it might be just a temporary thing to have them up there. And that's something that, you know, we'll, we'll figure out as we go. But, um, I think the, the lineup is balanced enough as it is, even without Hicks in terms of, of the hitters that are there and what they typically do well. And I think that they have the sort of added benefit to kick the can down the road with the first base battle by allowing one of them to DH. Um, I think we'll end up in a more, I think we'll have 
Bird and Voight in the lineup more often than just one of them and LeMahieu at first base. I think that they will... I, I don't think that both either of them, Bird especially, are that much uh, of an awful defensive first baseman that they can't be, you know, at around league average at first base to the point where they're not really hurting the team. And then, you know, if, if they can, if, you know, I you say what you will about spring training numbers, but looking at the trends of Greg bird with great opposite field power and good plate discipline and Voight, you know, being willing to go the other way to get singles and as well as his tremendous power, those look like two hitters who could really be great contributors. And, um, you know, that's something that's good for the team to have them both there. And it's going to be sort of, you know, the spring training battle is going to end up working its way. Uh, working its way through the season. So, you know, it ends up being a good problem to have. Um, as well as when curious. you... Can... No, no, JP, go. I thought you were done. Uh, I was just going to say, it's a good problem to have, and, and it also allows them to support someone like Gary Sanchez, who's coming off a down year. It gives them the chance to sort of support Bird as he gets his way off of a down year. And I think what they'll end up, you know, you will hear players talk about how they want to be able to pick each other up as they go, because, you know... Aaron Judge is one of the best players in the league, but he's going to go for through a two for 20 at some point. And it's, you know, it is what it is. And the more talented players, the better, in my opinion. And Max, I'm curious what you think as to the comments that Boone made about LeMahieu leading off against lefties. That, that means that every time there's a lefty or most of the time when there's a lefty, he will be in the lineup, which, you know, in the major leagues is pretty often it's not all the time but it's pretty often that means that there would likely be some moving around in the infield what do you think that means for the prospect of Troy Tulowitzki playing you know how often things like that uh I mean it could be a, a plethora of things you could say that DJ LeMahieu being a lineup just means Tulowitzki to get a day off you could say a guy like uh Andujar is going to be DHing you move a guy uh Glaber to short uh DJ second you could even say LeMahieu play, plays first because he played first uh, against the Nationals the other day and he was playing some spring and uh, some minor league spring training games. And so that would mean a guy like Bird would be would be off because obviously against a lefty, uh, Bird's a lefty bad, so that might not be uh, in the Yankees' favor. Uh, so, I mean, just having DJ LeMahieu just his versatility is wherever you put him. You could even say put him a third, even give just Andujar a complete day off, like one of those things. Like, you know, I don't just, know if that would necessarily be the wisest decision by the Yankees. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah. the event but, that it's necessary, then Andujar needs a day off. Let, I mean, let's say, let's say John Carlo needs to play D, needs a DH a day, yeah. or Judge a DH a day. Yeah, then exactly. You could still put which they will do. Mayhew a third. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely Thank you agree. To yeah, and you see when you when you speak to the versatility of DJ Lemayhew, that kind of reminds me of another guy. He's not necessarily on the Yankees, but he's within the Yankees organization. And that's Tyler Wade, who his call to fame is his versatility and his speed. And he always kind of lacked in the ability to hit for power and hit consistently. But this spring kind of showed the Yankees. So he thought, so we thought that he can do those things. And, you know, he's not going to be Aaron Judge, but like he hit a home run or two and he's hitting doubles and he's stretching singles into doubles and he's stealing bases. And essentially he dazzled all over the diamond and the, and the, uh, on the defensive side of the ball and all these things. And I think we were all surprised the other day to see that 
Tyler Wade was omitted from the opening day roster in favor of Mike Tauchman. I think that's how you say it. Tauchman? I think it's Tuckman. It's close, Tuckman. but... Or whatever. I mean, something in like favor that. of the, the, you know, the, the new guy, Clint Frazier. And, I mean, I, I was certainly shocked. Not... I'm okay. I guess I was shocked, but I wasn't as shocked as other people. And I certainly wasn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't have tears streaming down my face either. Cause I, I think he's still going to get his chance, but I also think that spring training wasn't completely indicative of some seismic shift that Tyler Wade has had in his performance ability. Yeah. But that's one he, way to look at it. Yeah. But he, the, the moral of all this is that he made some striking comments to the media following his demotion to AAA that are pretty uncharacteristic and not to any fault of many guys within the Yankees system in, in the organization. You don't see the Yankees, the players express a lot of raw emotion to the media because I, th- I think the team in the front office kind of instills that, that the team is bigger than you and all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I completely understand that. I don't blame him at all. But it, it was almost refreshing to see a guy yeah. on the Yankees say, like, I'm pissed off. I hate it. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm he's pissed, actually. Yeah, like, he, he, he did say, I'm pissed. And he like, should oh, you be, seem honestly. And he said, yeah, very. And yeah, he should be. Like, he, he dazzled I mean, in spring training. And, and he gets spring training is what He got replaced by some guy they got in a trade, like, a day... um. Um, before like um, roster cuts and everything. I mean, that's so. I mean, I could see like why he's upset. I would be also. I mean, yeah. It, it, it like when I evaluate what players are saying to them. You know, one of the things I look at was um, was he wrong? Like, did mm-hmm. he say anything that could be interpreted as incorrect? Like, if he said, you know, I got my bat to come around. I think he said something similar to that. I don't have the direct quote, um, the full quote from him in front of me, but. And then he hit like 240. You'd be like, ah, hey, you're really sure about that? But yeah. he came into spring training and hit 308, 845 OPS, played everywhere but first base and catcher and pitcher. Um, and, you know, didn't have any glaring issues in the field. I mean, he did have the one game where he had the hip tightness, but that was clearly kind of an open and shut thing that he just was tight one day and that happens. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I understand why he's annoyed because Tuckman had, you know, a 600 OPS in spring training before he had a single last night, a single and a walk last night. Um, But I do think that there is some logic to having Tuckman there. I don't know. The first thing I said when, when it happened was I wouldn't have Tuckman on the team and I would take Wade, but I can see the the need to have a real pure center fielder when Brett Gardner with his age and tendency to wear himself down yeah. is playing center field full time well before you wanted him to be doing that. Like in, in a perfect world, in my opinion, Brett Gardner would get maybe at the very, very most 10 starts in center field in the first half of the season to like, spell Aaron Hicks and now he's probably going to get that in the first two weeks of the season which is obviously not what the Yankees wanted yeah. um, so I can understand wanting a pure outfielder to be the n- number two center fielder behind Gardner because Tuckman, Tuckman might get more airtime in center than we really think because they might end up you know we talked about how LeMahieu in the lineup allows so many other people to to you know 
either DH or go to secondary positions, you could end up seeing Tuckman in center, Gardner left, Stanton DHing one of the first basemen off kind of situations more often than we may are maybe thinking at this point. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how they handle it once Hicks is back, because if you then have Hicks as the primary center fielder, Gardner technically as number two, you could have Tyler Wade be the last guy on the bench because of of speed yes. and the full versatility aspect. Whereas Tugman is, is according to Statcast, he's one percentile above Wade. Wade is 89th and, and Tuckman was 90 and Statcast sprint speed. They're very comparable, very fast, good athletic players. And Tuckman mm-hmm. only plays the outfield, whereas Wade can play, you know, most of the infield as well. And so I think it comes down to the fact that Wade was drafted as a shortstop who learned the outfield because he's fast, whereas Tuckman was drafted as an outfielder and hasn't played anywhere else and is a good, you know, speedy, pure center fielder guy, which yeah. I guess is what they're looking for. And, and what he said was, um, I did everything I could possibly do to show them I belong in the big leagues to help this team. And I just know I'm able to play outfield. I've done this for three years now. If that's the issue, I don't know what the problem is. It kind of blindsided me. I was just trying to get ready because our center fielder Hicks, I don't know when he's coming back. So I was trying to be ready for whatever was thrown my way. And then it happened. I think by it happened, he means um, the demotion. He means the demotion and the trade. Um, and another point he made, I don't have the direct quote. I know he said it to Coley Harvey, the Yankees beat writer for ESPN, that um, he wanted to be played, you know, in center field more you know, uh, earlier than, than when he was. He didn't play his first. He didn't start a game in center field until um, more than two weeks after Hicks had gotten you know, had played his last game. Hicks last played March 1st. And I think I dug through the game logs and he didn't start in center field until the 17th. So there's sort of an interesting disconnect. I'm not really sure what they thought was going to happen there. I don't know if they were in talks with teams about, you know, Tuckman level guys that made them comfortable with, with Wade not starting. Um, it's interesting to note that, that Wade didn't start in center field until Florial got hurt. And so I'm wondering if the team had some crazy plan about using Florial off of a good spring. Like they were talking about having Glaber break camp to replace Didi um, when he hurt his shoulder in the World Baseball Classic a couple years back. I just think it might have ruined Florial at that point if they just threw him to the wolves like that right off the bat. But... Yeah. Also, that like, would have been, been really fun to watch, though. Oh, it would have been so, so fun until, oh, yeah. until he batted running around in center field and running around the bases. Oh yeah, if he hits, you know, that the, the thing about him is when he gets his bat on the ball, he's flying. But yeah, it's beside the point. It just right doesn't now. happen. It just doesn't happen that much. Well, he looked like he was getting there. The problem was he got hurt again. Bummer. Yeah. But see, the thing is, like with a lot of these things and a lot of the comments that the Yankees make and a lot of their moves, I. I try to look for the writing on the wall because that's kind of how they operate. They don't say and do a lot of things that could just be taken at face value and interpreted as such. I mean, that that's just too easy. They're too smart. They're too, I mean, they just don't do that. It's, it's not like them and it's not like most professional organizations, but what I see with this and having Tuckman Tuckman on, on the roster for now with Hicks's absence is maybe when Hicks returns, we see kind of like a double move almost with Tuckman or Tuckman. What the fuck is his name? Tuckman going down in addition to somebody like Greg Bird, 
or, you know, whichever first baseman is underperforming at that point. And the return of Aaron Hicks to the lineup and Tyler Wade coming up, because at that point you won't really need the two first basemen because there's DJ. And when you have Brett Gardner as your backup center fielder and not Tyler Wade, you, you know, there's like a little bit more room to operate. And I think at that point, the super utility that Tyler Wade is will be a little bit more necessary in the line. Not even necessary, but it's a bit more expendable. Like you can afford to have that as opposed to a guy who was born and raised to play center field. Because with, yeah, the, I, with the volatility of Brett Gardner and his health and his stamina, you're going to need a guy who really has control of the position. And while Tyler Wade is a competent center fielder, he's not a center fielder. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's I get no what you, I get the distinction. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing about it is it's just it's like uh, 2012. Do you remember when the Yankees traded for Chris Stewart on like the last day of spring training? Uh, Cervelli, Francisco Cervelli was going to be the backup catcher. And they traded for Chris Stewart, who was a guy who's been a veteran backup, you know, his entire career. I think he might still be in Pittsburgh, honestly. Um, and they sent Cervelli to the minors. And I don't know if he was as annoyed um, as, as Wade has made it now but it sort of has that same vibe of like young guy who you know might have the pieces together a little bit um to be a competent player albeit maybe a bench player and then kind of has the rug pulled out from under him you know because he might not you know it's different because wade was being asked to be a major league ready center fielder off of you know less than 10 days of of prep, which is just kind of brutal because they really gave Florial more playing time in center field when there was an unrealistic shot of him contributing there with Hicks being hurt. So I, I, I get why he's in the days. I thought because I thought he played there in the um, minors also. I mean, so oh, wait, no, he really he's, he days? has experience, but it's a, you know the Yankees play guys at positions in spring training that they could be playing in you know in the yeah, regular games, season. I think he should have um, made it on the last spot. I'm not upset, but I just, I don't know. I think it was, yeah, like I mean, I wouldn't stop. categorize myself as upset, but no, I can I'm relate not. to why he's, yeah, why do. he's upset. Yeah. So I can I, see the, I, I can I, see I, the logic I, to both sides of it. Yeah. And I, I think the Yankees didn't make this move to say Tyler Wade, you stink. I think this was strictly. This they saw is an opportunity and they took it and, and yeah. they went for it. I, I think this is what was best for the team at the time. And it's not to say that Tyler Wade's going to spend the entire season in Scranton. I truly think he's going to be on the New York Yankees be before the May. First man up. He's the like first man up if anything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's, I really don't think, besides the fetish that Yankees fans have with Clint, uh, Clint Frazier, I don't think there's anyone else on the AAA team that's necessarily even close, barring injury. No. No, like maybe I, I don't think Shella would be the next closest guy, and that would need probably Shella, three, yeah. three infielders yeah, to get hurt for that to happen. Yeah, it would be, or or Estrada, one of those two minor yeah. league infielder guys. But it, you know, Wade has enough athletic ability to play all three outfield positions anywhere but first base, where they already have plenty of coverage. Um, and the, the Yankees have have an okay amount of catching depth at this point, which obviously isn't relevant to Wade anyway, but. The thing about about Tuckman and, and and the way it came to be is whenever you can turn an A ball pitcher into a 
major league caliber outfielder who can has optional depth to be in triple a or the bigs up and down up and down no matter what it's you, you kind of have to take that shot because the Yankees have Tarpley, Britton, and Chapman in their bullpen. And I don't think Philip Deal had any chance of making the team this year. So, well, he's a good pitcher. I mean, that, that kind of, I think that even speaks more to why the ability they, of Talkman or Tuckman. Yeah, well, that he's explains. He's single A also. I mean, that's Right, that's thing. what I mean, I mean, you know. Never know how many single A relievers. I mean, like, it just, he could, he, he could end up being beaten up existed. by yeah, he could blow out his arm, you know, God forbid he could, but he, you know, pitchers break and he's in single a, and you kind of can't project up what he is, you know, maybe the Rockies push him a little bit, but you know, he was not realistically in the picture for this year and, and possibly not even next year. And he was rule five eligible in December. I tweeted this, but Cashman has always been ready to trade, um, trade rule five eligible talent before we get to the point where they will need to be protected. Um, you know, Mike King, who's the the top prospect starter came when the Yankees traded Caleb Smith and Garrett Cooper to, to Miami for um, international bonus space, but just to clear 40 man roster spots because the Yankees wanted to protect different guys two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of, you know, deal would have been taken in rule five and the Yankees would have gotten nothing for him. So what did they get instead? They got a, you know, good outfield, you know, good is, is subjective. He raked in Albuquerque, which has an altitude aided ballpark, of course. Um, <laughs> and um, considering cores. Well, all of the PCL, all of the Pacific Coast League stadiums, most of them are at altitude. So that's sort of it's a very hitter friendly league because they play in they I don't think they're in Colorado Springs anymore, but it's Albuquerque, it's Vegas, it's um Salt Lake, it's it's all up there. And so that has a lot to do with inflated offensive stats. But um when you turn a single A reliever who is rule five eligible into a guy that you know you have control over for years and who has shown an increasing you know, he has good plate discipline. He went from hitting um, one home run. I know um, it's interesting to look at his his power stats are really intriguing because he wasn't much of a power hitter at all a couple of years ago. And something, you know, he, he worked with a coach or, or something. He I know he mentioned he he changed his lower half mechanics, but he went from hitting um one home run in 129 games in Albuquerque 2016 to in 2017, he hit 16 in 110 games. Sounds very Luke Voigt-esque. And then in tw- in um, 112 games in 2018, he hit 20 homers there. Yeah. And so that's an obvious sort of change in, in swing path as well as um, mechanics. He's obviously trying to put the ball in the air and he's a strong enough guy to, to make it go out of the park. So it, it, it seems like... There's a formula to what the Yankees are trying to look for in trades, especially because when you look at the Voight trade, they wanted to get rid of Shreve and they wanted to get rid of Gallegos because they were kind of clogging roster spots and they weren't really good up and down relievers. And so they did not only did they get Voight, but they got international bonus money. So like that was that was seen as just like a spare parts deal and Voight ended up having you know, some of the best batted ball stats for the rest of the season. And there's no guarantee. I think we're a little sort of presumptuous because of how successful the Voight deal was. But 
we'll see how, how the Tuckman thing sort of plays itself out, but he's kind of got some nice trends in the minor leagues and it's just a matter of whether the Yankees can help unlock that as he comes up to the bigs. Yeah. And I, I think this, I don't know, like the whole thing with Wade and then the thing with Tuckman, it's just, it, it shows me, obviously the Yankees are very calculated in everything they do. This is no surprise. This has been a thing for a long time. I think this is, I wouldn't say it's a Yankee way as much as it's a Brian Cashman way that I've noticed. But something that I think we've seen this in another context is just, I, I guess it's just a general rule of the Yankees that they have a lot of faith in the guys that they have faith in. And they are willing to double and triple down on guys like we saw with Gary Sanchez in the offseason. And Boone and Cashman made these comments, which kind of reared their head again. Like we saw in some of the early little uh, tidbit releases on the Michael K show and via tweets from the book inside the empire by Bob Clappish. And some of them kind of, kind of struck me. And there were a lot about like the history of the Yankees and George Steinbrenner and his relationship with Cashman and Randy Levine and things like that. But a lot of the ones about Boone and the team going forward kind of stuck with me. And one in particular, I think we picked out about five that, that kind of resonated, but there was one in particular that I saw and it was about how Brian Cashman decided to fire Joe Girardi after the little, the, the time, I don't remember if it was, I think JP said it was in Chicago, but when Gary Sanchez was benched by Girardi and the feud that they had reached the media and Brian Cashman does not like the inner happenings of the Yankees reaching the media. He's very low key, likes to be reserved. And that I guess was the tipping point for Joe Girardi's tenure with the Yankees. And that's essentially when it was decided that Girardi would be fired. And I really found that interesting because the Yankees, obviously Girardi was there for about 10 years. He paid his dues. He won them a championship. He did all these great things, but the Yankees must've had so much faith and so much stock in Gary Sanchez at the time that they pretty much fired their coach, their manager, because he was at odds with, what they hoped would be their franchise player for the next 15 years, their, their catcher. And I think yeah. the faith that they have in Gary Sanchez is exemplified in that. And, and the reaction that the front office had to this little feud. I think it, it dovetails with other, um, sort of interesting storylines that have come out of this, that, um, Girardi gave up on the team around the same time. It was August 6th. Um, they were playing in Cleveland. Um, and you know, then he had told the media, there's a, there's a quote from Girardi in a day article, um, written by David Lennon, um, where he said, you know, this, he said, the start is not the message. The message is from us verbally telling him your defense needs to improve. So there was no sugarcoating. There was no attempt to say, oh, we're just giving him a day. There was no attempt to dress it as anything other than a disciplinary benching meant to sort of humiliate him. I guess you could argue. And I'm sure that's kind of what Cashman had in mind, but it definitely looked like Girardi sort of airing out some dirty laundry um, as well as, you know, if if it's true that Girardi had had given up on the team's ambitions, because remember, they had a strong September to really boost themselves into having the wild card game. Yeah, at Yankee before Stadium. September, they were they were like a barely a 500 baseball team. They had a very tough August. That was when Judge was hurt um, and having an awful month, um, all that stuff. And so it's interesting because if you combine that sort of, you know, benching him um, 
and then um you know him going to Cashman after the season was over talking about ideas for the 2018 season without actual contract in place you know it's Joe Girardi kind of had a bit of a an air of of like you know a, he was a little bit of a tyrant in that way. I think yeah, he, think he Joe Girardi got too big for his britches at the end of it. Yeah. A tiny bit. Yeah. He, I think uh, he was kind of the man for a while. Like obviously Cashman and the Steinbrenner family and the Randy Levine, they have a very, they have a hold upon the Yankees, but like Joe Girardi was there for a long time and he was probably like, probably looking at Joe Torrey and how he, his managing style from the late nineties through, you know, Girardi's beginning of his tenure. And he was saying Joe Torre had all this power. Like he had so much control over the clubhouse and he's like, why not me? I mean, like, what, like what's stopping me from doing that same thing? And maybe Joe saw such a young team and such a, like a fallible clubhouse as having like the entire, uh, the entire team success was built around rookies and second year guys. And he's like, all right, this is perfect. I'm just going to take advantage of this. And come, this is complete speculation, absolute speculation. But like, Maybe Girardi looked at this and said, all right, I'm going to double down. I'm going to make this my team because these guys don't know anything else. And then Cashman said, no, 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 you're done. Uh, I think it just, it, it looked bad. You know, when you say that, that you want a guy to improve his defense and that you're benching him as a result, and then you start Austin Roma and he goes over four with three strikeouts. Like you have so much like, you just get caught with your pants down. Like, what were you really like, you know, now that you, you get that revelation that he gave up on the team, you know, this was August against a Cleveland Indians team that they eventually, you know, beat in the division series. And it's sort of when you take, you know, what happened with the incident where he didn't make that challenge and he was crying a little bit in his press conference and was talking about how the players picked him up because they eventually won that one you know, in that series, it sort of kind of all makes sense. You you put those pieces together about benching an all-star catcher in the middle of August, which is a, you know, a stretch where you can win a lot of games and you can really change a postseason race in yeah. August. We saw that, that stretch in August in 2018, where Oakland was hot on Houston's work. tail. And, you know, you saw what Oakland did. Oakland was winning the AL West for a little bit before they ended up in the wildcard game and losing to the Yankees. But, you know, we, you know, you're not at a point in in August where you're where you're making him. Um, you know, giving him disciplinary things that could actually affect the season. And so yeah. I think that the most the stark, you know, the the big revealed to me was that Girardi felt like he was entitled to a new contract or at least another one year deal or something like that, that the Yankees were better at that point in the year than, than he might've thought. And that was a miscalculation by him. And, um, with all, with what we know now, I'm not as surprised that Girardi didn't come back. No, to be honest I'm not with either. you. And I think this this kind of explains a lot of what we saw in Game Two of that ALDS against Cleveland, where Girardi didn't challenge the ball. That that hit. Oh God, who was it? Uh, I, um, Lindor, I believe it hit. No, I, I don't think it was Lindor. I feel like it was a uh, white guy. Lonnie Chisenhall. Lonnie yes. Chisenhall. That's who it was. It, it hit the knob of his bat. We all remember it. It haunts all of us. And Gary mm-hmm. was like. Joe, it, he, it hit yes, the bat. Exactly. It didn't hit him in the wrist. Like it hit the bat, and Joe's like, ah, no, 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 whatever. 
I think shows he didn't have any. Yeah, exactly. He didn't trust Gary Sanchez. He didn't have any faith in him. And when I when I think about benching Gary Sanchez for his defense in August in a playoff race, I'm like, okay, like I get it. You want to send a message, but I also think that. And my first reaction is August. Gary Sanchez. He hit 186 last year. This was 280, 35 home run Gary Sanchez that he benched. In like August. Yeah. I think and, he, and like, he's August like Gary. Like August yeah, is, his, is his month. And yeah. I, I think that I, I completely at this point get why Brian Cashman made the decision to, you know, part with. But I, I think that's just extremely interesting, but it com- makes complete sense. I wasn't and, shocked at all. And then, and it also, then you know what it also. No, yeah. Well, can I make one more point before we change gears here? Because it actually, I'm, I'm kind of making more and more connections. So think about it more and more. Remember how Aaron Boone came into that Yankees managerial job? And one of the first things he said is, I want to have a good relationship with Gary Sanchez. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it sort of was like, all right, like, I'm glad you're making was, a big yeah. point about it. But now it's kind of like, wait a minute. They, you know, probably more than we know from the book and more than we know, obviously, from the public and the media reports is that I don't, I really think Gary ended up really with a bad taste in his mouth as a result of, of it. And I just think, like, can you imagine you're going from being benched in August, not being trusted with your instincts on the field in October, you know, on the line like that is the most important time of the year is yeah. is the inning the pitch of that playoff game that you're in and, and it wasn't even like it was a meaningless pitch like it had real life implications in the game right that was right before the Lindor grand slam off Jack yeah. Green so like that was something that had a, an impact on it and and can you imagine how demoralizing that must have been Gary Sanchez just to be like yeah, my manager doesn't trust something that I feel happened on the field. And it just so happens to be defensively. It's not like he, you know, ran into an out or did something stupid. Like he was yeah. astute. He was on top of it. He was right there and he was right. And his manager didn't think so, which yeah. just looks terrible. It just looks terrible. I think the worst part of it all is that Gary was completely right in the situation. And Joe didn't trust him. But- oh, Absolutely. And and uh, you mentioned Aaron Boone coming in and saying, you know, I want to have a good relationship with Gary Sanchez. And a lot of the other points made in the interview and that I've seen floating around, emphasizing Aaron Boone and how he rose to get the job and things like that. And one of them that really struck me was that a key part of Boone's interview for the job of manager was to put together a lineup for the New York Yankees by only looking at the numbers and not reading the name. So this was kind of a, I guess, uh, showing dedication to the analytical department and just that whole style by the Yankees. And I, I don't know that that's kind of striking the fact that, that this went from like a supplement of Girardi's managing style to this is the managing style. Though. Like this is how we're going to do things around here. And like, I don't know. I feel like that's just kind of a cool thing to have to do. Like that, that's something that JP would love to do is just put together a lineup oh, by, by reading numbers. But like to, to say to a managerial candidate in the job interview, make a lineup with just these numbers. I don't know. Like, I guess he must've done all right because he got the job, but I can sort of see the um, pluses and minuses between having him do that as he is, is showing himself to be the right guy for the job. And I think, you know, 
I like that it sort of separates the egos from it as well, especially because Boone is coming from a job with ESPN where he was so involved with the idea of stars and what they bring. And so now it's sort of like you can't rely on that anymore. You can't have that sort of idea that a guy needs to be where he is because he's, you know, more famous than the others. And that's not to say he would have brought that bias in, but it will, it shows more about his feel for the game as well as for, um, what he knows about the trends that are currently happening, you know, stuff like where if this was the nineties, Aaron judge would probably never bat second. He would bat third or fourth. Um, I wonder stuff like Stuff, no, you know, no. stuff like that is is just, you know, it's 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 movements with with within the game and around the game, and so it's sort of interesting that that's what he was tested on, and it's interesting because you know there's probably some stuff that he was thinking and some stuff that he, you know, I don't know if he realized that he was going to be a managerial candidate throughout the 2017 season, but it's stuff that he was thinking as he watched and commentated on games and probably to a point of complexity that he couldn't even share on a national broadcast yeah Um, it'd be disinteresting it'd be hard to consume really but like whether or not he even understood in the first place is a question and it's not just the disembodied slash line you know it's not just average on base and slugging that he was probably working with they probably worked you know through stuff with you know, batted ball rates, you know, ground ball, line drive, fly ball, hard contact, opposite field, all that sort of isolated power stuff, you know, because you end up be trying to build your lineup around more than just batting average and slugging percentage, because you could probably do that. It just doesn't tell the whole story. If a guy hits for a ton of power, maybe he shouldn't bat fourth. He should bat third. You know, there's all this stuff you want your best hitter to hit second is sort of the adage that, that, that goes, I mean, Mike Trout bats, bats second. So yeah, you want your Mike Trout batting second in theory. That's kind of the idea behind it. I think the angels want their Aaron judge batting second is what we should well, be precisely. Mm-hmm. But I, I wonder also if the Yankees mandated all of the managerial candidates to do this, or if this was something specific to Boone, like, do you think Rob Thompson walked into his interview and they said, yeah, you know, Rob, you've been around the team for five plus years, but like, I, I wonder if they made him do that. Like Carlos Beltran, like, all these guys or if that was something specific to boom, because they thought he maybe didn't understand it or anything like that. I think um, with the way this like team is now, they're so like heavy on like analytics now. I think that's, um, I think that's um, what they want now. So I don't think it was a specific um, thing for Boone. Yeah. And I I mean, I, I would have to agree. I mean, if you look at the way uh, the uh, uh, the uh, league is like shifting, it's all about um, like analytics now. So, and we know yeah, um, not Cashman just like he loves his analytics. Play. Yeah, it's not just like lefty at the plate. Let's throw the second baseman in in right field anymore, and that kind of moves us into one of the other takeaways that I had from it, which was that a lot of Aaron Boone's in-game decision making is not necessarily made by himself. It's they have like an analytical table within the tunnel of the clubhouse or in the dugout during every game, making a lot of the decisions. And like a lot of Boone's job isn't to make in-game, you know, 
yeah, solve in-game dilemmas, but rather the two to be like a friendly face. Media. Exactly. I think I think Which it Girardi may not, wasn't really. He was awful. It's interesting yeah. how you portray it, though. It, you know, Girardi had his binder, you know, you know, the crap about that narrative. But, uh, you know, it also came out that that he has every you know ability to to go against what's what's recommended to him. And so in my head, I don't view it as much as he's being given you know, mandates, someone's coming down the tunnel and saying, you need to put Batances in the game kind of thing. I think it's saying, hey, you know, Aaron, the the, the numbers are saying, you know, the next three hitters in the inning, like have like a 170, you know, weighted on base average against fastballs mm-hmm. and Batances. You should have Batances ready for the seventh because this is who he's going to face, kind of stuff. And so, I think a lot of it, as, as it's shown by his ability to put the lineup together without names and just looking at numbers, you know, he's a smart baseball guy. He's grown up around the game. Yeah. It's not like he was hired off the street from like a public relations firm to just be a guy who gives press conferences. And so, I think, it, you know, I'll be interested to sort of read that whole segment about how the analytics are are worked into the in-game strategy. But I think there's a lot of stuff that ends up being no brainer ish that he's not going to get as much credit for. And, and, you know, I don't know. I don't have a problem with it per se. And, and, and I don't know. There are people who. I guess want a, a, a front office and managerial sort of split between the on-field stuff and the not on-field stuff. But at the same time, you know, I kind of don't have an issue if there's a bunch of guys with with PhDs and, and master's degrees from great universities crunching the numbers and telling me, you know, hey, you'd be smart to make this move. You know, it doesn't or, it doesn't really bother me. Yeah, especially it's, given the fact that Boone kind of sounds like he's got like a mouthful of cotton sometimes. His job, though. He shouldn't know the move. He shouldn't have to be told. Well, no, I move. think he does. I, I don't think it's any slant. I think he does, but Boone. I just think that's such a bad like thing in terms of the sport. This is a sport. I know, but I think it's a time where they just want to pump it there. They just want to pump it. It's it's all like, and that's all it is. I'm sorry. I like him, but that, but there's nothing, and there's nothing really wrong with that, I guess. Like if it it works, like they won a hundred, what a hundred games last year. Uh, Has it worked? It worked worked last year. It really, I mean, not really. A lot of it is a hundred games and gotten, come and knocked out in um, yeah, first by the round. team that won the red that yeah by the team that won the world series i mean that that's not really a fault of their own but yeah they got shellacked but i don't think exactly. the analytics team is responsible for 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 you know the, the yankees giving up 16 runs in a game that was that was the players like at that point you're getting into blaming analytics on the players shortcomings and i don't think that's right but i think it i think it's completely unfair to say that aaron boone has any misunderstanding of his players at the game because I mean, you're around these guys in literally 365 days a year. I would hope that you have he some knows sort of the game, but I don't know. I just think it's like, I just like think it's odd. That's all. I just don't. <laughs> yeah. I think, it's, I think it, it's, it is odd to a certain sense, but a lot of the sort of things ended up working out is about, you know, the object, you know, the subjectivity of, of eye testing how things come together. I mean, if you go at it by wins above replacement, the Yankees had the second most valuable pitching staff in baseball. But all I hear about is that Larry Rothschild needs to be thrown off a cliff. So, you know, it's, 
it's always fun and convenient to blame the manager and blame the coaches, but you know, That's because no one wants d- to blame their favorite player for being a piece of shit when they are. Right. It's, oh They're my God, the manager because, put them in a bad position. No. Well, Sometimes the only time that you could up. really, the only time you could really argue that a player was put in a bad position by the manager was the Lance Lynn decision when he brought Lance Lynn in with the bases loaded when Seve didn't have it. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, it happens like that sometimes. Um, and even well, that, it, no one expected Lance Lynn to be Harry Houdini there. No, which, you know, it's brutal because there was no way that was going to ever work out well. I think, you know, it's, it's more convenient to blame managers and, and coaches just because they're the ones that we, we, we look at managers and coaches and they're the old wise men who are supposed to be telling the young kids how to play the baseball well, which, you know, is all fine and dandy, except for the fact that they can only do so much to help with actual on-field execution. And so, you know, people, people demonize analytics just because it seems like, you know, it's it's something that you don't understand a hundred percent of the time. Like, Oh, nerds are ruining the game of baseball, which you can are ruining my sport. Yeah, buddy. That's me ruining the game of baseball every all day, every day. Um, but you know, I, I just, it, it doesn't end up having as much of an on, you know, uh, it's not all, you know, complex math. A lot of it is, Hey, this guy hits the ball. To this part of the field 75% of the time let's make sure we have a couple more fielders there that's how a lot of shifts end up coming together you know it's not you know they're not doing the you know they're not using the quadratic formula and a bunch of other crap to end up, <laughs> you know to just end up there it, it it just a lot of it is common sense stuff that's portrayed in a way that's way more complicated than necessary um and so <laughs> You know, it, it's fine that the analytics team is right there and um, it'll end up being better for the Yankees that they're keeping up and, and are sort of on the cutting edge with with what's going on. And uh, it only serves to make them better if they're ahead of the curve w- with stuff like that. And another thing that kind of struck me today that was circulating around Twitter was the athletic article about, or, you know, the one in which they they anonymously poll major league baseball players each um, i would assume each respective beat writer talks to their team and you know like gets their opinions on a pre-designated set of questions and there you know there are some easy ones like oh who's the dominant pitcher who's the most feared hitter and um overrated most underrated and some of them though at towards the end were kind of funny what i took most from the article is that Nobody wants to fight the Yankees because Aroldis Chapman was the most feared pitcher if one was to charge the mound. And Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton were the two most feared hitters when it comes to them charging the mound. And I'm not necessarily saying that those are wrong because obviously Aroldis Chapman is a very large, very scary man who throws and uses his arm with immense power and strength. So. In the event I was going to fight anyone, any pitcher in the major leagues, I wouldn't choose the guy who's like 6'6", 50, and has a bit of a, a murky history. So, good idea by the players on that one. And also, if I was a pitcher, and I was going to throw at somebody's head who had the threat of running at me with a bat, with or without a bat, I probably wouldn't pick the two guys who are 6'6", six, six and 6'7", six, and 250 and 285, respectively. 
Granted, yeah, Aaron Judge is, is well. a gentle giant. But we saw him get into the mix, though. He's just sensitive, man. Yeah, he almost he almost sent Joe Kelly's head into the stratosphere. Yeah, he I could have if he wanted to. It would have popped off like, uh, oh, my God, like, like a, I don't even know. Like, like, like you're opening a pull and spring bottle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when, like when you like, twist the bottom and then like, yeah, is what it would have done. Exactly. And, then, and then he would have put his thumb over his neck and spread, you know, sprayed the blood around like it was the clubhouse. Oh, after right, right. Sorry, that was a bit graphic, but I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't necessarily mind. But um, yeah, I, I took that from from the article. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought not that was worth that, read. Not to mention that there's a bunch of like Gary Sanchez and, and Luke Voigt are also huge dudes. And yeah, um, and Dylan Batanzas is a Freddy. huge guy. CC and CC and Frog. Aaron Hicks and Romine Scrappy. Yeah, Romine dropped the gloves on Miguel Cabrera, no questions asked. Gardy could be fun. Too. Oh, the most important it's point like about Austin Romine is that he, unlike Jason Veritek, noted um, coward. Yeah, he noted coward. His- he took off his mask. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Romine yeah. took off. Romine was not. I don't need. You know, you can't really tell, but Romine was not. You know, it kind of looked like he was gonna get in Miggy's face, and then he took his mask off and walked right up to him. That was the first thing he did. Yeah. Yeah, he was. You know, he wanted to be face to face, unlike. Um, Veritech, and I also believe uh, Christian Vasquez in that Tyler oh, Austin thing. He didn't take his mask off either. No. no, he didn't take the mask off, and he was pulling Austin by the back of the jersey like a little bitch because he was scared that Joe Kelly was going to evaporate if Joe Kelly, or if Tyler Austin got a uh, got a hold of him. But anyway, right? It's a fun read. If you have the chance, if you're subscribed to the Athletic, go read it. Um, it's funny to hear, even though it's anonymous, it's funny to hear uh, players' perspectives on things like how they view other players, how they view pitchers, how they view managers, uh, how they view baseball as a whole. It was it was pretty fun. But yeah, also in terms of baseball as a whole and how we feel about it, we are going to have a little bit of fun and predict division winners, wild card spots, the World Series matchup and winners. Well, winner, and then each um, each league's respective awards, AL or AL and NL MVP, Rookie of the Years, um, and Cy Youngs. So let's start with JP. Uh, so to start with the playoffs, I've got the Yankees winning the East. I got Cleveland with the Central, Houston with the West, kind of run of the mill stuff. Um, the usual the usual suspects, if you will. Um, wild card. I think we're going to end up having. Uh, Tampa Bay and Boston. I just I think Boston is is regress going to regress, but they're not going to regress to the point where they miss the playoffs. I think the wild card game is between Tampa Bay and Boston at Fenway Park with Minnesota coming out of contention within the last two weeks. Um, in the NL, I've got the Braves in the East, the Cubs in the Central, Los Doyers in the West, um, and I've got the Rockies and the Brewers coming through in the wild card mm-hmm. round. Uh, and I've got the World Series, uh, an apt throwback. I've got Yankees over Braves. Ah, yes, love that. Trying to go next. All right. For the American uh, League, I have the Yankees, the Indians, and the Astros as your um, divisions, obviously. And the two wild cards are the Red Sox and Tampa. Um, for the um, National League, I have the um, Braves, the... Um, um, Milwaukee, the 
um, and the uh, Dodgers as your um, division. And the um, wild card, I have the Phillies and the Cardinals. And my World Series is the um, Yankees over the Dodgers. I'll go next. Um, my playoff predictions, as most of y'all saw on Twitter the other day, uh, Yankees taking the East, Indians taking the Central, Astros taking the West with the Red Sox and Rays getting the wild card. Uh, same as others, probably the Red Sox and Rays are probably the uh, probably the two, the the second, third best team in the East, and I don't see the A's or the Twins really uh, coming close. The Rays show that they could re- really uh, hang in there with uh, with the the powerhouses of the East. Uh, in the NL, in the NL, uh, Braves in the East, Cardinals in the Central, uh, Dodgers in the West, with the Phillies and Mets being the wild card, and the Nationals not even squeaking the playoffs. Uh, Denver in World Series predictions. Yeah. And my World Series prediction is the Astros over the Cardinals. Uh, and just a little tidbit, the Yankees losing uh, in the ALCS to Houston. All right. So I will go. And mine are a bit different than the rest of them. So I, I kind of took a bit of a step. So. I think in the American League, the East will be the Yankees, the West will be the Astros, and the AL Central division winners will be the Minnesota Twins. Mm. I think the first wild card will be the Red Sox, and the second one with reluctancy will be the Cleveland Indians. I think that's almost by default. I want to pick the Rays, but I think they're due for a regression, and I don't think they did enough to make themselves better or maintain the success that they had from last year because I think it was a bit of a bit of a farce. Um, so if there was even another team that I thought could win like 85 games, I don't think the Indians would make this uh, second wild card. I think they'll sell it the deadline. So by Cleveland, your window's closed. National League, East Braves, Central is the Cubs. West would be the Dodgers and two wild cards would be the Phillies and the Rockies. And for a World Series, I think we are going to be having Jay-Z on the field. At Yankee Stadium, shades of 2009, we have the Yankees taking it over six games. And to snake back around, I will go into my league board picks. So for the American League, MVP will be number 99, Aaron Judge. Cy Young will be the Indians' Trevor Bauer. And the Rookie of the Year will be the White Sox, Eloy Jimenez. For the National League, I think the MVP will be Nolan Arenado of the Rockies. The Cy Young, obviously, will be Max Scherzer. And the Rookie of the Year will be Nationals outfielder Victor, eh, Victor Lise. Okay, and I will go next for AL MVP. I will go with Aaron Judge. For AL Cy Young, I'll also go with Trevor Bauer. And for AL Rookie of the Year, I will go with Eloy Jimenez as well. Um, for NL MVP, I'll stick with Juan Soto, as I did before. NL Cy Young, Max Scherzer. And NL Rookie of the Year, uh, the Padres, Chris Paddock. For my American League MVP, I have Francisco Lindor. Cy Young, Trevor Bauer as well. Rookie of the Year, I also have Eloy. I- um, for my, for my National League MVP, I have, um, I have, um, Ronald Acuna. Cy Young is Max Scherzer, and the Rookie of the Year is 
um, is Fernando Tatis. I like the Tatis pick, um, especially since he's making the team to start the year. Um, I've got a lot of similar picks uh, as we end up at this point of the um, uh, discussion. My MVP picks, neither of them has been mentioned before. So for my AL MVP, the $431 million man, Mike Trout, AL Cy Young, Garrett Cole, and a contract year with the Astros. Um, Future Yankee, possibly? Who knows? Um, My... AL Rookie of the Year will be sticking in Houston. I've got Forrest Whitley, the mm-hmm. righty who's a top prospect in their system. Um, on the NL side, I've got Anthony Rendon, who homered in the exhibition against uh, Stephen Tarpley, a pretty uh, impressive shot. Um, Cy Young sticking with the Nationals. Uh, I got Max Scherzer and uh Chris Paddock is my um, not only one of the pitchers in my fantasy baseball rotation, but also my pick for National League Rookie of the Year. And I think you can kind of tell at this point, if you haven't already figured out that we didn't coordinate these picks with each other beforehand, because very likely I would have chosen the exact opposite of whatever Max had to say. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't we didn't none of us really knew these picks besides our MVPs were revealed a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, yeah, I think, I don't know if maybe it speaks to our like-mindedness or maybe it speaks to just the, the prospect of all these guys, but you know, some interesting picks. So our first voicemail is a little question for our friend, Max. Max on March 22nd, in the year of our Lord, 2019, you said the Houston Astros will play against the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. Please explain your basis for that, please, and thank you. Um, let's see. So the reason I picked the Astros was because I truly think that they're the best team in baseball. Just simple as that. Uh, pitching staff's pretty great. Their lineup's pretty great. Their bullpen's finally is starting to really come around. And, I mean, they show they can they, – they can – Keep up with the Sox. Like the Sox just last year were were out of, were out of this world. But the Sox are regress. The Yankees they couldn't keep up good. with the Yankees. Couldn't keep up with the Yankees. Sure, yeah. Shout out Astros. But uh, but I mean, I just I don't know. I don't. I just. I think more people I, were mad about the Cardinals pick than the Astros. The, the Cardinals pick. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Paul, I, I think the Cardinals just do to make the playoffs, and if they make the playoffs, I don't, I don't really know like really what's going on in the NL. They're, There's not really a, a big like a big powerhouse in the NL, and I think the Cardinals could figure out a way to scratch out like a division title and then make it the World Series. Like the Brewers were in Game Seven last year, and they weren't that great. They they rode a, the the hot hand of Kristen Yelich, and their starting rotation was absolute trash. You know, I, I mean, actually, I actually hated your pick too. But hearing that rationale was kind of hoping that this, you know, lackluster team with one hot guy and a good bullpen can make it to Game Seven in the NLCS. But it validates Cardinals it a little pen. bit. Where, but yeah, the Cardinals' pen good. doesn't have. But then again, they have Jordan Hicks, who played well, the ball Andrew about five hundred miles an hour. Don't forget on my guy John Brabia. He's the stud. Andrew is Miller is very Andrew good, Miller's and Alex good. Reyes is. Very Alex Reyes, he hasn't like pitched though in like years. I mean, he's I mean, a prospect type guy. I mean, he's still pretty good. But I, I'm, 
don't know. I I don't like the pick, Max. I like the Cardinals. I think I think they'll do good things this year, but we'll have to see. Maybe Max proves us all wrong, and uh, you know, maybe one day we're all gonna wake up and start walking upside down. But our next DM or voicemail rather is uh from our buddy Andrew in Hell's Kitchen. Welcome back, Andrew. Let's get to that. Hey guys, Andrew from Hell's Kitchen. So uh, obviously every year there's always a major surprise and disappointment in the standings that no one sees coming. Uh, my biggest surprise is that the Rays are going to overtake the Red Sox. Uh, I think having Tommy Pham for the full for the full year is going to help them. Uh, uh, Austin Austin Meadows and Tyler Glass now are going to break out because Pittsburgh can't develop players apparently. Uh, Willie Domus is getting better. They can help. They can get help at the deadline with their prospect pool. And just in general, I think the Red Sox are going to uh, regress from a health standpoint because they stood, they were they were really healthy last year. And just from a, a pitching and a bullpen, a starting pitching and bullpen standpoint, you know, Price is getting really old. Their bullpen stinks now, and uh, I do think there's enough to bridge the gap between the two teams. And uh, my biggest disappointment is going to be the Cubs. I think the Reds are going to be better than them in that division. That rotation bullpen is underratedly uh, a mess for the Cubs. Uh, and I have no idea what the hell is going on with Albert Amora, Al Moore over there. And uh, can people stop treating Theo Epstein like he's a fucking god? I mean, you know, you have him keeping Addison Russell over Eloy and Glaber. You have the stupid... Jason Hayward deal and just the fact that their farm system has not been developing starting pitching or that much pitching at all. And I'm sick of people slandering Cashman and then treating Theo Epstein like he's some sort of god. So, uh, yeah, what are your biggest surprises and disappointments? So, biggest surprise and disappointment of the season for the Yankees. Wow. Um, I don't know, John. What do you think? Okay, surprise. Greg Bird will perform well because his expectations are so low so like anything he does is you know good i don't know if that's a surprise but i think he's actually gonna like have a good like a good um i think he'll have a good year um disappointment miguel andahar will remain um terrible at third just like awful and i think that'll be it honestly yeah i like it i'm gonna say for a nice surprise that we'll see this one, I can't imagine will be all that popular amongst Yankee fans. Luis Sessa is here to stay. I think he's going to be here to stay, and I think he's going to be here to stay at or above league average. He might rise to the occasion finally and either be, you know, I, well, I think regardless, he's going to be the, the guy between the bullpen and the rotation, but I think he finally figured it out. And I know spring stats don't mean a lot, but what I do look for in the spring is. stats obviously are a little bit off because it's spring, but like you have to look at how a guy plays the game. And I think I saw in Luis Sessa enough beyond a reasonable doubt to believe that he might have figured himself. And I think a big disappointment will be I'm torn between Aaron Hicks perpetually on the injured list and that neither of the first basemen work out and they have to explore a trade market. But I think either of those will be a big disappointment. I'll go next. 
Uh, my, I mean, what surprise and disappointment, correct? Yeah, surprise and disappointment. Biggest surprise, I think Domingo Herman to be one of the best pitchers on the starting pitchers on the Yankees. I think that was I think my they're gonna. I think take. I think they're gonna use. Uh, they're gonna use the opener for him because you know he struggled with uh, with pitching in the first thing last year. I think that's gonna help him. Uh, just have a guy like Stephen Tarpley or like a, a Kingley or a Chad Green throw the first inning, and then let Herman just sling it for like five, six, four or five innings. And I think he's gonna, it's he's just gonna improve and to the point where he'll be able to pitch the first inning. And disappointment, uh, I don't think that Adovino is gonna have a good season. That's, I feel like I think that's a good one. I don't know. Like people want to say that like he's coming home. He's coming to New York. He's from New York city, like blah, blah, blah. And I hope the best for the guy. It's just that not all I like in a perfect world, every Yankee reliever would be shut, would be shut down this season. Like a shutdown reliever. Well, one's, one's got to act up. Right. And I think it's going to be him. And coming from the um, national Coming to the National League as well, yeah. Yeah. There's actually I, I, I think it would be I, I think it might be something like we saw with Stanton where it's a bit of an adjustment to the new league and it's considered a down year. And it's really not all that much of a down year, but compared to what he had done the year before, it's a bit of a disappointment. You know what I mean? Like thirty eight hundred isn't bad, but compared to fifty nine one twenty like he had the year before, it was disappointing. So I think I, I do understand that take, Max, and I actually don't hate it for one. So it's funny that he hit he hit close to twenty more homers, and I think he also had more other extra base hits with Miami than, um, but he only had twenty ish more RBIs, which is just a funny reflection on the fact that there was no one on base ahead of him in Miami, <laughs> and that RBIs are a bad stat I, to look at uh, when evaluating it. I think he had one thirty two in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, one twenty was off the top of my head. One thirty two. Yeah, yeah. That was one thirty two. Well, yeah, still. Um, so twenty homers should translate to more than thirty two R. Yeah, no, right. But um, I'll go into mine. Um, my surprise is that we've heard a lot of doom and gloom about the Yankees are going to have awful, awful, awful infield defense, and I think we're going to be pleasantly surprised with what we end up actually getting. Um, just because I think. I don't think Andujar is going to be stellar and I don't think he's even going to be average, but I think he's going to improve. Um, I think we've seen Tulowitzki move better than what we had expected coming into it. And I think that another year of, of experience under Glaber Torres's belt will be good for him at second base. Um, and then on days where Torres plays short, his natural position, and when LeMahieu plays second, where he's won multiple gold gloves, you almost tighten it up even more and end up with, with better um ability there um and my disappointment is going to be that yankee fans are going to have a very tough time with the inevitable regression from um 1.095 ops lucoid i don't think he is a actual 333 405 689 slash hitter i think he you know will end up being more of a 
270 to 290 range batting average guy and you know get making that guess is very difficult based off of the fact that he was so good in such a small sample size that you kind of don't really know what's real because we saw Didi Gregorius hit like 370 in April last year and we were crowning him AL MVP and then he didn't couldn't buy a hit in May so like it's sort of a 39 game sample size is really hard to judge a guy off of, especially when he started that, you know, he had an awful first couple of, you know, his first cup of coffee with the Yankees was terrible. Um, and it wasn't until August that he really turned it on. Um, and so I think that's the the disappointment we are going like how Stanton was considered to have had a down year, you know, when he still hit 38 homers and a hundred RBIs, we're going to end up, I think there's going to be some inevitable disappointment when Luke Voigt doesn't bat over 300, which which is not a problem by any sense. But, you know, I don't think that he's a fluke player in terms of what he showed, but I don't think he is a 188 OPS plus player. It's just not true. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that's fair. And I, I can't say that I think there are many Yankees fans who necessarily expect you know, prime bonds numbers like we saw in the last month of last year. But anything under 300 is going to come as some sort of disappointment to Yankees fans. And it's un- I mean, it's understandable, but like we have to temper our expectations because the guy is human. Maybe he doesn't seem it, but he is human. And, you know, I think of all the surprises that we've just outlined, I, I-, I think the greatest of them all will come at the end of October when we see Aaron Judge you know, face the uh, the first baseline at Yankee Stadium and, and hoist the commissioner's trophy with the lights above the facade shining down upon him and Gleyber Torres and Gary Sanchez and Giancarlo Stan and Luis Severino as the Yankees are crowned world champions for the 28th time. And all is right with the world. The world order will be, resto- will be restored at the end of October when the New York Yankees win their 28th world championship Most but for now sports. but for now it's March and it's opening day so let's enjoy that let's enjoy 162 games of New York Yankees baseball and the ups and the downs and the surprises and the disappointments and let's enjoy it all let's go to the games let's watch them on TV let's talk about it on Twitter let's record podcasts let's Send in DMs and voicemails to our favorite podcast, the before show. Let's let's do it. I mean, baseball season comes with the nicest weather of the year. It is essentially synonymous with all that life in America was all you know ever intended to be, and it's just this joyous occasion, and we get it literally 162 times throughout a spring and a summer and a fall. And Every year it comes around and we waited 170 days from the the Yankees' painstaking loss and they were driven off their field. And it ends today, the the ebbs and flows of the offseason and the, the, the rumors and the speculation and all this stuff. It's finally over. Pinstripes will be back. One o'clock contest against the Baltimore Orioles. Man, that feels great to say. That feels absolutely great to say. But for now, enjoy the game. Enjoy the 161 games after it. It's a ride. It's it's a it's a roller coaster. It's one that we're all going to enjoy together. 
emphasis on enjoy. So let's let's take this season to be nice to each other and to unite on the fact that we're all Yankees fans. We're all Yankees fans. And on that note, go Yankees. Thank you.